0: as we continue our worship this morning, let us take a couple moments to prepare our hearts in prayer for the word. Um, Father, we thank you that we can come together in your presence with your people to be reminded through the songs that we sing of your greatness, your goodness, your love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and uh, Father, we thank you for our right standing before you in our in Jesus. Uh, Father, as we transition our worship from uh, singing in song and giving to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and minds, that you would get us out of the way. We pray what we know not that you would teach us, what we have not that you would give us, and who we are not in Christ, please make us. And so we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but the city of Eugene has actually been in the news these past couple weeks, and this is what one of the reports read. I'd like to read it to you. The Oregon State Police say a driver was hurling cash out of his vehicle, leaving the roadside reportedly littered with $100 bills, prompting drivers in both directions to stop and to collect Police agencies received calls around 7.23 p.m. on Tuesday, April 11th, about money floating on Interstate 5 near the south end of Eugene. Responding troopers identified the driver as a 38-year-old male. He explained he wanted to gift the money roughly $200,000, he estimated. Authorities said there was no way to confirm how much money he actually tossed. Troopers asked him to stop throwing money onto the roadway because it was creating a traffic hazard, and he agreed. The Oregon State Police said responding troopers couldn't find any bills along the highway after the incident, (laughs) saying drivers did a thorough job of gathering the loose money. (laughs) You know, when I read that, I couldn't help but laugh, but the story also serves as a good example What it looks like to to go about the wrong thing, or to, to pursue the right thing, but to go about it the wrong way. I mean, he was pursuing generosity, but causing traffic hazards in the meantime. You know, as Christians, I'd like to suggest there are times when we find ourselves pursuing the right thing when it comes to the Christian life, but going about it the wrong way, whenever we live in light of this life and not the next. Whenever we live in light of this life and not in light of the return of Christ that could happen any moment when Jesus is going to come to judge the world and to forever set up his kingdom, consummate all things according to his will. This morning I'd like to invite you to the letter of 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 7 to 11 as we take some time to talk about guarding against doing the right thing the wrong way by means of living in light of the end. By means of living in light of the return of Jesus Christ and what he is going to come to accomplish. As you make your way there in your Bibles, uh, it's interesting to note that uh, as Peter is writing, he's writing to these believers who have abandoned the passing pleasures of this world and have pursued the eternal treasures of heaven. Uh, And in light of their pursuit of Christ and Him crucified, the reward for the righteous is that of suffering. Jesus told these individuals already in John chapter 15 and has told us that in this world, because they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will persecute you. And these individuals are suffering because they are followers of Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we continue to read in our text, how Peter encourages them and instructs them for how to live in a growingly hostile world, a world where there are growing pressures of persecution. We're going to talk about how to live in light of the end, how to live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back again. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word, 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. Verse 7 picks up this way. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. You all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, as we take time to walk through our our text together, I want to take some time to talk about living in light of the end. Living in light of the fact that Jesus could come back any moment to consummate his kingdom and to bring an end to all things as he's going to accomplish his purposes, both in heaven and on earth. How are we instructed to live in light of the end? We're going to talk about three things together. The first one is by means of praying persistently. In verse 7, we're encouraged to pray persistently. Verse 7, if I could read it again, says, but the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. As we open up verse 7, we read first the context of the command to pray persistently. The context is first introduced by the first word, but. Now, unfortunately in some translations, ESV, NASB, and IV, they don't have that first conjunction, but it is there in the original Greek, and it's important because it connects verses seven to eleven to the verse verses one through six. And in the first six verses, Peter reminded these believers that as Christ has suffered, they are also joining in the suffering of Christ. And in the midst of their suffering, as they're facing growing hostility and growing pressures of persecution, he reminds them of the certainty of judgment upon those who mistreat them in verse 5. And the certainty of salvation to all those who believe in him. It's a reminder to these believers that the worst the world can do to them is kill their body. Elsewhere in scripture it says don't fear the one who can kill your body. Fear the one who can destroy your body and your soul. And these individuals are to live in light of eternity. And so as we enter into verse 7, having spoken of the certainty of judgment and the certainty of salvation, he doesn't talk about the events that surround the end times. He talks about how we are to live in light of the end times, in light of the return of Jesus Christ. And so we begin by the context of the command. The second thing we see in our text is the motivation for the command but the end of all things is at hand our motivation to obey the command to pray persistently but as we're also going to continue to also love fervently and to serve faithfully the motivation for these priorities and the motivation for these commands for us as believers is to know that the end of all things is at hand now when you read something like this but the end of all things is at hand it might be puzzling to some of us, might be problematic, because if you know when this was written, it was written 2,000 years ago, and and you might be asking the question that is on some of our minds, how is it possible that Peter can say, but the end of all things is at hand, and it's 2,000 years later, and Jesus still hasn't come back. Well, to fully understand what Peter is saying here, we have to understand the meaning behind it. And, and the first thing that this warning instructs us on is that we're living in the last days. Whenever you read the New Testament, whenever you read about uh, what the end times uh, uh, look like and what, how they are talked about, it often refers to the last days. And sometimes people ask, Pastor, are we living in the last days? How do I know I'm living in the last days? We're living in the last days because the last days refer to the timing between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The last days were inaugurated when Christ was born in a manger and through the incarnation and ultimately all things will be consummated in the last days when Christ comes back again in glory and so what we're reminded first and foremost is you and I are living in the last days now it's also important to remember whether you whether Jesus comes back in our lifetime or comes back in our children's or our children's children's lifetime that Uh, We're reminded we're living in our own last days. You think about it, in the next hundred years, you're either going or Christ is coming. This is a helpful reminder to every believer sitting here today that our time on earth is brief and it's precious. We don't have time to waste our time on the passing pleasures of sin. We must invest in the eternal treasures of heaven found in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, because our time is brief and our time is precious. When Peter says, but the end of all things is at hand, he's reminding us we are living in the last days we read that throughout scripture first john 2 18 says little children it is the last hour and as you have heard that the antichrist is coming even now many antichrists speaking those who deceive have come by which we know that it is the last hour the signs of the last days were present in the days of the apostles and they continue to be present today we are living in the last days hebrews 1 1 through 2 says god who at various times and in various ways spoken in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds in these last days. We're living in the last days. Uh, secondly, this warning doesn't just tell us we're living in the last days. This warning tells us that Christ's return is imminent. That word imminent means sudden or unexpected. When we're talking about the imminent return of Jesus Christ, we're talking about the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment. So we need to be ready. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be alert. We need to be going about the business of the kingdom of God and not wasting our time on the passing pleasures of sin in this world. We read about that in Revelation 1-3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For the time is near. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. Christ could return today. He could return tomorrow. We need to live in light of his return. That is any moment. Romans 13, 11 to 12 says, And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Be spiritually alert. Exercise spiritual sobriety, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And if it was nearer then, how much more is it nearer now? The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the, the and let us put on the armor of light. The return of Jesus Christ is imminent. What we are invited to do in a text like this when it says, but the end of all things is near, is to picture Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father on his seat, sitting at the edge of his seat, waiting for the Father to say, go. There is nothing at this moment holding Jesus back from coming back again except for the will of the Father. It was true in the Apostles' day and it's true in our day. We are to live in light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment. So let me ask you the question, are you living in light of the end? Are you living in light of the fact that Jesus could come back right now? Are you alert? Are you prepared? Are you ready? Because when he comes back again, he promises to bring judgment to the world. And I ask you this morning, if you're sitting here today and you don't have the assurance of your salvation. You don't know if you died today or if Christ came back at this moment, you would be with Him in heaven. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait to make the decision right now, right here. Admit your need for Him. Receive Christ into your life. Make Him your Savior and your Lord. The day of judgment is near because Christ's second coming is near. And if we're picturing Jesus as sitting on the edge of his seat it's a reminder that there is a sense of urgency brothers and sisters in Christ because there are those in our family members, among our friends in our in, in the workplace, among our coworkers, among our neighbors would there be a greater sense of urgency for us believers? if we knew that Jesus was coming back today or tomorrow that's how we're called to live well, i can't wait to talk to my lost family member about this tomorrow because today is the day of salvation and Jesus could come back at any moment I need to live in light of the end and so when Jesus says or when Peter says excuse me that the that that the end that the end is is near that the end of all things is at hand it's referring to the imminent return of Jesus Christ but the purpose of And the motivation is not to motivate us to complacency or fear, but holy living. Uh, When Peter writes this, he's not motivating us to complacency, to say, okay, Jesus is coming back again. He could come back at any moment, so I'll just quit my job. I'll live off of somebody, and I'll go about my business and continue to do things. And so I'm kind of apathetic to the world around me. And so the motivation is not towards complacency. The motivation is not towards fear. Because some people learn, oh, we're living in end times. I take a look at some of the some of the events that are happening around the world, and we pay close attention to uh, things when it comes to the end times. And some people find themselves fearful. Some people find themselves anxious and worried. But. Uh, The command is not to be fearful, to run and hide, to go off into a cave somewhere and hide out until Jesus returns, stockpile a bunch of weapons somewhere. But the text tells us that we are to pursue holy living in light of the return of Jesus Christ. And so we get to learn about the priorities we are to pursue in light of Jesus' certain coming. So we saw the context, we saw the motivation, and then the content of the command. He says, but the end of all things is as a, hand, as a hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. It doesn't say go run and hide. Don't stockpile a bunch of weapons. Don't go up and pile up a bunch of food in your, in your pantry somewhere. You can do that if you want. But our focus should be a priority of, of prayer. Do you really believe that Jesus could come back at any moment? Do you believe that today could be the day when Jesus returns or tomorrow? How would that change the way you pray for your children? How would that impact the way you pray for your spouse and your family members? How would that change the way we, we see the local church and its purpose and the urgency for us to be about the business of the kingdom of God? How would that change or or, or shift uh, those passing pleasures that we're pursuing on the side that are taking up our time and wasting our efforts? I mean, how would that change things? What would you be investing in if you knew that Jesus was coming back today or tomorrow? We're to live in light of it by praying persistently. It says, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The words in the Greek, serious and watchful might be synonymous but they have their unique meanings attached to it how are we to pray we are to be serious in our prayers the greek there literally means to be clear-minded to have a clear mind and so the manner in which we are to we are to pray and think about the world around us especially in light of the end times or the, especially as as Christ's return comes closer Uh, is with a, a sound mind, we are to see things through the lens of the Word and not the world. What ends up happening is we see the events going on in the news. We read about things going on in the world. We take a look at our own lives and the challenges that we face. We are to think and pray in light of God's Word, which reminds us of how important it is to stay grounded and rooted in it and then it also says also be watchful in your prayers the word watchful there can mean can be alert but it literally means in the greek to be sober minded it means don't be intoxicated by the worldly pleasures of this world uh, think clearly don't be intoxicated by fear Or don't be intoxicated by complacency or apathy. But know who you are in relationship to to Christ and, and the unique purpose that he's given you. Don't allow the things of the world to intoxicate your mind or your decisions. We're reminded of the importance of prayer every moment of every day. Because we need to start our day in persistent prayer. Because if we're not starting our day in persistent prayer, ultimately... What ends up happening the rest of the day, we make decisions and we go about our relationships and having conversations, not in the way of the word, but in the way of the world. When we're talking about prayer, what we're encouraged to do is to see our desperate need for Jesus. Can I suggest if we're believers and if we're Christians and we spend one day without praying to God, recognizing our need for him, how arrogant is that of us? to think God I don't need you I've got this figured out I can do it on my own if there is a day that passes what arrogance and pride do we have that we're not fully and completely desperately in need of the Lord and depending on him in persistent prayer can I encourage us that the first thing we are to prioritize, in light of the end, the light of in light that Christ is coming back to consummate all things in heaven and on earth, and to establish His kingdom where He will rule and reign forevermore? As we first are called to pray persistently, pray persistently. How would you pray persistently? I like to encourage us first to pray strategically. I'd like to begin this morning and invite you to take an inventory of your prayer life. I want you to picture. Just you and the Lord in the room and you're having a conversation with him and he knows your heart. You can lie to me, but you can't lie to him, right? And take a moment to share with him, God, this is my prayer life right now. Last week, this is what I did. This is what I didn't do. And God, this is the prayer life that I want to have as I express my daily dependence on you, my moment by moment dependence Upon you, How far did you fall short in regards to your prayer life? I think myself included, as I consider this text, I can do a better job of committing myself in dependence to the Lord in prayer. What does that look like practically for you? I'd like to suggest this morning that what ends up happening when we're living in light of this life and not the next is misplaced priorities. And when priorities are misplaced, we find ourselves pursuing the passing pleasures of sin rather than the eternal treasures of heaven. And what that looks like is you and I begin to worry about everything because we're not praying about anything. The next time you find yourself anxious, worried, or overwhelmed with life, take a moment to say, God, I can't figure it out. I don't know who can figure it out, but you can. And I'm going to commit myself to you in prayer. I'm going to invite others to join me in prayer as you take an inventory of your prayer life. Secondly, focus your prayers as you strategize that on the eternal, not just the temporal. How often do we find ourselves praying about our our physical needs or our needs in regards to what what our goals are in this world? How much more should we be focusing on the eternal What are those eternal things that should inform our prayers? There are three things that are eternal. God, his word, and his people. We're reminded this morning that we need to inform our prayers with God. You know, when you start your prayers with God, you recognize that He is the sovereign God over the universe. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to be anxious about because He is God Almighty. He sits on His throne. It doesn't matter how bad circumstances of life look. It doesn't matter how bad the storm gets. I'm trusting in the Lord. We need to pray not just about God, but His Word. We need to pray that God's word would not just inform our minds, but would transform our hearts and, change, and, and lead to changed lives. Uh, uh, you know, when, when, when we prepare to come to a, a meeting together where we worship in song and giving, but also in the word, my prayer is always, Lord, not just that your word would inform the people, would, would transform the people, but how many of you know before it gets to you, it has to get through me? And I know an effective message first has to get through my heart and transform my life before it can ever be effective in yours. How much more should we allow God's word and pray about it in such a way that it's going to change us and transform us? I'm not just doing this devotional to get done with it so I can move on to more important things, but I'm digging into your word to be a light into my feet and a lamp into my path. To provide for me everything that I'm lacking. I desperately need you. You pray about his word and pray about people. You know, all people are eternal in some sense, some unto unto eternal life, others unto eternal death, eternal separation from God and His people forever. If we're going to focus our prayers on the eternal, we need to recognize that there are people around us in Springfield, in the workplace, in Lane County, going to hell, and we have an opportunity to point them to the only way out, and there's only one door, and His name is Jesus. Recognize the urgency recognize the need to to go out and and invest in the eternal and so pray strategically secondly i'd encourage us to pray consistently pray consistently can i ask you this morning how do you feel about those people who call you only when they need something from you you know what i'm talking about you know i get that call every now and again from from a family member in particular and and there are times i see oh There they are. I hope it's not because they are in the middle of a crisis. I mean, when life is going good, when the relationships are well, but when things start to go off the hinge in life, there they are again. If that's how you feel about those people who only call you when they need something from you, I don't want to be that person with the Lord. Now, it's true. We need Jesus every moment of every day. And we need to recognize that. But don't just turn to the Lord in a time of crisis and then ignore him the rest of the week, the month, or the year. We need to pray to the Lord consistently. Uh, Charles Stanley, the pastor outside of First Baptist Atlanta and his ministry in touch. He passed away this past week, and his ministry uh, impacted many lives. Many faiths grew under his leadership, and uh, this is what one of what, what was what was sent out about him in regards to his consistent prayer life. Every morning, Doctor Stanley made prayer a priority. This is his prayer closet, and they show you a picture of it a place he could get away, sit, kneel, and lay prostrate before the Lord. He continually sought his will and yearned to be ever closer to his heavenly Father. On April 17th, he went to bed listening to an audiobook about heaven, and the next morning he woke up, woke again to walk with Jesus, this time hand in hand, face to face. May that be the example for us when it comes to praying consistently. What does it look like to pray consistently? I think that's a good godly example to follow. I'd like to give us a few things. The first one is set a time. If you don't put it in your schedule, you're not going to do it. I often say that that, that Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. Saturday night, you've got to make a decision. Me, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord tomorrow. Some of you might be tired. Some of you may not be feeling the best, but tomorrow we're going to worship. It's the same way with prayer. You know, a Monday morning prayer is a Sunday night decision. Wednesday morning prayer is a a Tuesday night decision. You need to put it in your schedule and say, I'm going to rise a little bit earlier, five minutes, ten minutes, an hour earlier, because... We're living close to the time of the end when Jesus comes back again in glory. I need to be praying and I need to set a time. Secondly, set a place. Where's your prayer closet? Where's that place where you can turn off the world and stay focused on the Lord? Yes, it might be the car where you're driving, but can I encourage us? Take time to have an actual prayer closet where God gets your undivided attention. Where it's not you multitasking, doing this or doing that, but but set a place where you can take time to pray. It might be your bedroom, it might be an actual closet, it might be your bathroom. Just find a place where you can be alone with the Lord. Thirdly, set a posture. I don't know about you, but it's more meaningful to me in certain times when I'm praying to sit down, other times to stand up. It's other times meaningful to me to bend down on my knees because I want the posture that I exhibit before the Lord to reflect the posture of my heart kneeled and in submission to God Almighty. And there's our times when you are so in desperate need of the Lord that your face is prostrate before the ground and you say, Lord, I need you. doesn't matter the manner in which you sit, stand, stand uh, face down on the ground, but that you have a posture of prayer That you commit to. And then the fourth one is is set aside excuses. Stop making excuses. I just told you, asked you to to take an inventory of your prayer life. And as you took a look at it last week. Or took a look at it uh, yesterday. What were some of your excuses? Stop making them. Start prioritizing prayer and commit to it. You know I read an article about Susanna Wesley. She's the. Mother of John and Charles Wesley, she lived during the 1700s. If you haven't ever heard her story, it's, it's a unique one. Uh, this is what the article said. She gave birth to 19 children but lost nine in infancy. She vowed that she would never spend more time in leisure entertainment than she did in prayer and Bible study. Listen to this. For two hours each day, she would sit in the kitchen with an apron pulled over her head. This was her quiet place while ten children read, studied, or played all around her. When Susanna was under the apron, she was with God and was not to be disturbed except in the case of direst emergency. What does it look like for you to prioritize prayer in your specific season of life? Stop making excuses. Live in light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment and commit to Him in prayer. So first, pray persistently pray persistently and then secondly love fervently love fervently as we continue to read in verses eight to nine it says and above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins be hospitable to one another without grumbling first thing we see in regards to the second command and loving fervently is the priority of the command The priority of the command is to be of utmost importance. It says, and above all things. Why should loving fervently our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ be a priority to us? Well, because it's a priority to God. If you want to love God, the manner in which we demonstrate our love for him is our love for one another. Some people say, well, I don't want to be a part of a church because there's plenty of hypocrites there. There are many problems there. Listen, how can you love God if you don't love fellow believers within the local church that we are called to love? Love is to be of utmost importance. It is to be a top priority. As a priority for God. It should be a priority for us. In Scripture, John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus, as he was preparing his disciples for his departure, When he was going to ascend and go to heaven, he prepared them with this command. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and uh, we've been talking about this portion of Scripture, and we've been talking about what it looks like practically to love fellow believers to love like Jesus loved. And ultimately the extent of that love we know is found in the cross. He laid his life down for us. He expressed selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional love. But when you see how Jesus loved his disciples, he walked with them and talked with them. He called them by name. He knew their names. The first step is always if we're going to love like Christ loved, loves us, we get to know one another's names. Don't just get to know one another's names. Spend quality time with one another. Jesus didn't just hang out with his disciples one time a week. He didn't just hang out with his disciples every month or every other month or once a quarter. No, he did life with his disciples daily. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You really get to know people when you spend that much time with them. And you also begin to disagree with one another when you hang out with one another that much. Which is why the text goes on to say, as as we continue to read in verse 8, that above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. The people you're called to love in the church are not just those who are easy to love, but those who have wronged you those who have hurt you, those who have mistreated you. As Christ has forgiven you, we are called to forgive them. Uh, the text gives us the specific command. It says, above all things, have fervent love for one another. That word fervent means to stretch or strain. The word fervent is a word used to describe an athlete who's a runner, who's, who's straining and stretching for the finish line. We're reminded the kind of love we are to show one another is not full of fuzzy feelings. It's more full of sweat than it is sweetness. And as we're straining, as we're stretching, we are to love one another. I don't know, but those people who are easy to love, I'm not doing much straining. I'm not doing much stretching. But I will tell you, and I'm sure some of you can can attest to, be a good witness of it. There are some people who have stretched your love and have strained your love and have showing you what true love really is in the midst of it. Can I tell you, growing up, I had one sibling who really stretched and strained my love. And I will tell you, that stretching and that straining has been a blessing to me throughout my life. Whenever your love is strained or stretched with folks in the church who are difficult to love, it allows you to love in a deeper way, to love like Christ loved us. When it talks about loving and forgiving, it's quoting Proverbs 10, 12 there, where it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. Matthew 18, 21 to 22 says, then Peter came to him, same one writing this letter, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I did not say up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, he's not talking about the exact number, 70 times 7, whatever that number is, but he's saying a numberless amount of times. You forgive again and again and again, following the example of Christ. 1 Chronicles 13, 4-7 says this, Love suffers long and is kind. What would our marriages look like if we adopted this kind of love? Let me read it to you. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, doesn't behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the kind of love we are to show one for another as we love fervently. I want this message to be very practical to you this morning. And so I want you to think about those who have been stretching and straining your love. Maybe you're married and and your spouse has been stretching and straining your love. Ask God to help you continue to love as he has loved you. Ask him to help you adopt an a heart of forgiveness in in areas where you've been holding on to past hurts and holding on to past resentment, and that resentment has turned itself into ugly bitterness that seems to cause a barrier between you and your spouse. Maybe it's someone who's among your family or your friends who who are in the church, and there are some of those who, who have been stretching and straining Your love, see that as a great blessing as you're growing and maturing in the kind of person that God has called you to be. The expectation of this is that you will be wronged, you will experience hurt, and you will experience offenses because the unfortunate thing about all of us is that we are a bunch of imperfect people. Thank God that God loved us. Even while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he's conforming us to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. But at times, we're like porcupines. The closer we get to each other, the more we poke at each other. Let's learn to allow our love to be stretched and allow our love to be strained. If I could give us just some words of application. The first one is this. Get to know your church family and what their needs are. Begins with getting to know the names of those around you. Maybe today that you're sitting next to someone that you haven't met. What a wonderful opportunity to say, hey, we're going out to lunch a little later. Would love for you to join us. Would love to get to know you a little bit better. Maybe it's... Taking time to chat with other individuals in regards to those that are not just easy to love, but more difficult to love, and you would say, "Hey, we need to we need to work on this relationship, and we need to deal with it." What does that look like? And and getting to know your church family and the needs that they have. You know, last Sunday, my wife she was sick, and uh, I had mentioned that to somebody, and then they just showed up on our front front door uh, the next day to give us a meal. What a blessing that is, where you don't even have to ask. They know your needs, and they provide it. What a blessing, indeed, that is. Secondly, take time to spend quality time with your church family, not just talking about Sunday morning, but beyond that. Maybe it's a small group that you can join. Maybe it's a Bible study that we have in our church, but really take time to sit down with folks, do life with them in good times and in difficult times, and really get to know them. And then forgive your church family. Is there anything that's on your heart that is burdening your heart that, is, that, is, that needs to be forgiven, that needs to be let go? When we forgive others, it's not forgiving and forgetting. It's choosing no longer to hold it against that person. And when I remember it tomorrow, in that moment, once again, I make a decision I'm going to forgive again. Because as humans, it's difficult for us to forget. And so it's a moment by moment submission and a surrender to the Lord. Now, we talked about love here in regards to a kind of love that is fervent, that is stretched, that is strained, that covers a multitude of sins. But hospitality is in the same category as love. I'd put hospitality under the same command. And as we continue to read, it says, as each one, oh, verse 9, be hospitable. To one another. Be hospitable to one another. One of the qualifications of an elder is that of hospitality. The word hospitality li- literally means love for strangers. Uh, I read, or I was watching a message this week. Keith Krell had mentioned this. Hospitality, this is a great definition. Hospitality is making people feel at home when, they, when you wish they were in their own home. the kind of hospitality we are to show those who, who come around us, and not just being hospitable to those we like or we enjoy, but those that are difficult to love and to be around. I mean, you know, to be hospitable, it takes time, it takes effort. If you've got family, I mean, it's a challenge at times, right? You got all the things, different, different things going on in life, you know, but we're called to be hospitable. What does hospitality look like in the local church? Well, inviting someone over for a meal. You say, well, you know, I don't have a lot of money to invite people over for dinner or something like that. Make them popcorn. You don't have to be fancy about it. You can just take time to enjoy time together. Invest in their lives. Maybe go out to lunch. Go out to dinner. Maybe pack a lunch And when we're talking about hospitality, it's literally love for strangers. So who are those strangers in and among you that you would say, I don't know them. Maybe they've been coming to the church for decades. And you would say, I need to get to know this person. Exercise hospitality in getting to know them. You know, the first part isn't too bad. You know, exercise hospitality. Then the next part, you say, why do you have to put that in there without grumbling? Grumbling. From time to time, we may find ourselves grumbling because of the effort that gets put into it, the difficulties that go into it, but we are to be hospitable and we're to have a joyous, cheerful attitude as we do. Lord, help me to be hospitable, but Lord, help me also to have the kind of attitude you've called me to have. And so, what does that practically look like for you? Maybe this week, to reach out to a stranger, I say stranger, like this, in the church, that you don't know, that you would say, hey, let's go out to lunch, let's go out to dinner, come over to my house, or maybe I'm going to pack a sandwich, and we're going to go out to the park, and just have a good time, get to know your fellow believers as you do, and so how do we live in light of the end, by means of praying persistently, by means of loving fervently, and then lastly, by means of serving faithfully, serving faithfully, Verse 10 reads this way, As each one has received a gift, minister, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know, as we serve faithfully, well, we begin first to see the, the recipients of the command. The recipients of the command are each who have received a gift. Who are those who have received a gift? They are those who are followers of Jesus Christ. What we're reminded of in this room is each one of us has not only the Holy Spirit, but a gift of the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ. Each one of us has at least one specific gift or a combination of the categories that you read about in Scripture to serve the local body. In Romans 12, 3 through 8, and 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 10, you can read about some of those specific categories. Ephesians 4, 11, and then, of course, here, 1 Peter 4. And so it's pretty easy to memorize. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and that's where you can find the gifts that are listed. But all of us have at least one gift. The text goes on to tell us, It goes on to tell us in verse uh, 10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. So what is the purpose of the spiritual gift that you've been given? Well, to serve the needs of others in the church. You have a gift that you can serve the rest of the body with. Uh, In a moment, he's going to list those two categories of gifts that gifts can fall into, maybe serving, maybe speaking, but you all have a gift. If you're not serving with your gift, You are not allowing someone's need to be met by the gift that the Holy Spirit has given you. If you're not exercising your gift, in a moment we're going to see that those gifts, the purpose of those being exercised is for the glory of God. And what you do when you you do not serve with the gift that God has given you, you are holding God back from getting all the glory that He is indeed worthy of. Use the gift that God has given you. It says, as each one has received a gift, minister to it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A steward was a a slave or a servant in the household. He had, he he owned nothing, but he managed everything. This chief servant and, and steward was someone who had access to all of his master's things. And he was to be a good steward of them. We're called as believers to be good stewards of the gift that we have been given. So is your gift being exercised or is your gift being wasted? We have a responsibility to be accountable before the one who has granted us the gift. Minister to one another as good stewards of what? Of the manifold grace of God. In the Greek, that word manifold is a beautiful one. Because it speaks of the diversity of gifts. It can literally mean multicolored. And so if you were to take a look at Twin Rivers Church and the members who make it up, and you were to see in colors the the diversity of gifts that God has given this local body, it would be a beautiful, diverse um, colors that you would see as if it were just spread out. And that should be the beauty of the way the church functions. You know, Jesus said, this is how you will know that you are my disciples, by your love one for another. And so one of your witnesses, your testimonies to the outside world is, wow, they really love each other and they really serve one another selflessly, sacrificially, and unconditionally. And what a testimony that is before an unbelieving world. The worst testimony that you can show is when you're disagreeing with one another where there is disagreement in the body, where there is hatred in the body. There's plenty of that out there. What we are to do in here is to love one another, knowing that what unites us is stronger than what divides us. And to pursue love, pursue our common profession of faith in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Two categories. uh, Peter breaks it up. And I like Peter. Peter's very practical. I mean, he breaks the, 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 the... the, the gifts into two categories. If anyone speaks, let him speak the oracles of God. And so if God has gifted you to preach, to teach, to counsel in regards to the instruction of God's word. If you're a mother and you have an opportunity to use your gift in the lives of your children or a grandparent to give, to use that gift in the lives of your grandchildren, don't you waste that, use that. If you got the gift to minister to the children or minister to the youth, don't waste it, use it. And so the first category is speaking. And he just breaks down all those speaking gifts into one category. Speaking, what does it say here? The very oracles of God. If that's your gift, don't simply speak from your experience. And that may be helpful from time to time. Don't speak from what the latest culture um, books will tell you. But speak from the authority of God's word. God's word is authoritative and true. It's inspired by Him, and it's profitable. Do we really believe that? I mean, is this sufficient, and is this enough, or do you have to look outside of God's Word? The reason we teach and preach God's Word week in and week out is not just so that it'll go in one ear, and go go in one ear, and go out the other, but that it would not just inform you, but it would transform you, that it would change your life to let the Word go out, and to know that it's not going to return void. If you've got a speaking gift or an opportunity to use that speaking gift, or God speaks in and through you to fellow believers or even unbelievers, take that opportunity not to waste your gift, but to use your gift. Speaking. The other one is serving, is ministering. Um, Having said, he speaks the very oracles of God. It says... If anyone ministers or or serves, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. Who gives us the ability to to do these gifts? Are they developed? No, they're from the Holy Spirit who who provides it. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What we're reminded, uh, Peter, he, he wraps up this section. A lot of times you read elsewhere in letters, When you wrap up a section, you end with a doxology. Peter ends here with a doxology, but he's still got another chapter to go. I mean, he's so overwhelmed by the grace of God, the manifold grace of God, the the beauty of the gifts that God has given the local church to serve one another with, to love one another with, that he breaks out in a doxology of praise. I ask you this morning, when you reflect on how blessed you are because of the way fellow members have ministered to you in this church, do you simply compliment them or do you say to God be the glory? That should be our prayer. You know, we should serve with our gifts with excellence. We should do what God has called us to do. If you've got the gift of singing, to sing to the glory of God and bless the body as you do. If it's teaching, if it's preaching, if it's counseling, you should use those gifts to the glory of God. If it's ministering, if it's mercy, if it's giving, whatever the gift that God has given you, may it all give God glory, honor, and praise forever and ever. You know, uh, often, you know, as a preacher, Your gifts are a little bit more open than than others because you're standing on a stage and sometimes people will say, oh, that was a good message. It really ministered to me. And that's a wonderful thing to say, wow, to God be the glory that he used someone like me and used my voice to communicate the beauty and the majesty of his word to not just inform but transform. What gift has God given you where you can say to God be the glory forever and ever amen this morning i want to encourage you to live in light of the end we're living in light of the last days jesus could come back at any moment when you leave here today may you picture jesus christ sitting at the edge of his seat waiting for the father to say go as he comes back to judge the world and to bring salvation to his people and when you live in light of that you'll know that you've been called to pray persistently. You'll know that you've been called to love, love selflessly, sacrificially, unconditionally, fervently. And you know that you have been called to serve with the gifts that God has given you. And as love is shown one to another inside of the church, our prayer is that that love would overflow into the lives of unbelievers all around us to see that what Jesus is able to do in someone's life is so irresistible that they have to have it for themselves or they have to know more about who Jesus is. Are you making Jesus that irresistible? May that be our prayer. Can I pray? Father, we thank you for our time together in your word. Um. And the, moment, and the reason we're praying here right now is not just because we've come to the end of a message, but we know we desperately are in need of you to take the truths that you've given us, not just to inform our minds, but transform our lives. Father, I pray that we would leave this place with a greater motivation than we've ever had to see the urgency and the need to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray with a clear mind and to pray watchful and alert, knowing that your return could happen at any moment. Father, if we're not serving in the church with our gifts, Lord, that you would show us what they are and help us to serve the body with what you have given us so that we can give you all glory, honor, and praise. And Father, as our love for one another overflows into our relationships with unbelievers, may they see how irresistible Jesus is. That Jesus came, he died, he rose again, and he offers salvation as a free gift to anyone who will receive him as their savior and their lord father if there's someone here this morning who wants in this moment to express their faith in you and is genuine because your spirit is the one who changes hearts and draws hearts to the father we to jesus we pray 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 that they can say this father i recognize i'm a sinner i missed the mark i know my sin is what separates me from you god But I also know that Jesus came to bridge the gap, to forgive my sins, to grant me everlasting life. Today I make Jesus my Savior, my Lord, the one I will follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, we give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.